From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. Another bust for a boom-and-bust town. In Nukla, on the western slope, the uranium mines closed decades ago. Now, coal's going away. Got sick to my stomach. It was like, how can this happen again? How the community is reinventing itself and where hope lies for other towns dependent on legacy energy. Plus, whether to drop out of college, the Electoral College. And later... Turn right onto 28 and a half road. In a quarter mile, turn left onto B4 Tenths Road. Understanding the Grand Valley's unusual road names. Also, bees are busy in the lavender fields of Palisade. If you can actually see movement in the plant, the buzzing of the bees, this is much closer to being ready. Ready for harvest, that is. And a 13-year-old explains goat tire. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. Energy booms and busts have shaped Colorado for generations. Look at a thriving city or a lonely ghost town, and chances are energy had something to do with their fate. Now, as Colorado embraces renewables, and given the tough economics of coal, can yet another energy transition be made easier for communities where extraction meant prosperity? We're going to begin in the tiny towns of Nucla and Natarita, where the biggest employer is going away, a power plant and the coal mine that supplied it. When that news broke, a town trustee lamented that Nucla was likely to dry up and blow away. But as CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg found, people are trying to prove those words wrong. Donna Morris and Jane Thompson remember how they felt that day, the day they heard coal was leaving. Got sick to my stomach. It was like, how can this happen again? Again, because Nucla and neighboring Natarita have been through this before. The biggest thing here was uranium. And in its heyday from the 40s through the 70s, this area was bustling. Thompson describes the cozy sense of security mining brings. You think things are going to boom forever. You'll all, they'll always need uranium. They're always going to need coal. But always isn't really a word you can use with mining. After uranium prices tanked in the late 70s, the mines closed. And so did shops and bars, both movie theaters. Hundreds of people moved away. This part of the state, known as the West End, never really recovered. And a few years ago, a new blow arrived when Tri-State Generation agreed to shut down Nucla's power plant and the coal mine that supplies it to settle a clean air lawsuit. Together, they were the town's biggest employer, with more than 80 workers. The mine closed earlier this year, and the plant will shutter in 2022. Morris has been Nucla's mayor for years. And at first she thought this would be the death knell for this place. That doesn't last very long because, you know, we're fighters. We have to pick our britches out and just keep going. Plenty of people here hope mining returns in some form. The local paper still prints the price of uranium on its front page. But even if it does, Morris's friend Thompson says they can't depend on any one thing anymore. We have to be a little more diverse. And look to what the area has to offer above ground. Here's a great view of the San Juan. Oh, yeah. Paul Kosky guides me through a section of the Paradox Trail, overlooking a vast expanse of rocky desert dotted with blooming cacti. He and other volunteers built this route, which hooks up with hundreds of miles of other trails. He says some locals are still skeptical about the value of attracting outdoor recreation. But for the most part, I think people realize that we have to do something. Um... 
and and we have to do something fairly soon that uh, time's running out for us. Koski's lived in New Cliff for 40 years, and what keeps him here is what he thinks will entice other outdoorsy types. Dark skies, wide open spaces, more cows than people. Because we are so wilderness-like, so isolated, that's what we have to offer people is that solitude. There's so much public land here, and that's our gem. The key, he says, is letting people know this area exists. And that's where Dina Sheriff comes in. If you like the type of stuff that you'd find in Moab, but you don't want the crowds, this is where you should be. That's one of the snappy lines Sheriff uses to help market this place. But outdoor tourism can't be the only thing in Nucla's future, she says. She's with the West End Economic Development Corporation, which started only a few years ago and whose work has become more urgent after the news of the power plant and mine closing. The organization has started offering classes for locals looking to start their own businesses. The hope, she says, is to help people develop a vision beyond mining. You're going to be able to do something that you want to do, and you'll do it by choice. So far, nearly 30 businesses are in the works. And Sheriff says entrepreneurs from out of town are interested, too. One industry that has its eye on the area is cannabis. The first two dispensaries are in the works for Natarita, plus a hemp co-op. Most of this is still in the future, but Sheriff says locals are already starting to see things pick up here. Even if just noticing that you're having to stand in line at the hardware store, you know, you didn't have to do that three years ago. The area is starting to see more investment, too. It's won a bunch of grants to develop its airport and beautify parks, and residents themselves have set up a charitable fund to support local organizations, like a new early learning center. The hope is that these efforts will ensure this community doesn't need coal or uranium, even if mining ever does come back. Mayor Donna Morris says she thinks fundamentally Nucla has something plenty of people want, a quiet life. Because when you go two hours in any direction, you are in a city, and it is very hustle-bustle and very fast-paced. And to be clear, she's talking about Grand Junction and Montrose. And most people find that once you start living here and you go to those places, coming back home is the best thing in the world. And Morris and others are working toward a new future for their home, a future beyond the cycles of boom and bust. In Nukla, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Now, Nukla is one of many Western Slope communities searching for a new economic balance. With that in mind, Colorado this year created the Just Transition Office to help coal communities. A sponsor of that bill was Democratic State Senator Carrie Donovan of Vail. She's on the line. Hi, Senator. Hi, Ryan. Uh, your district covers a big swath of the Western Slope, so I'm going to ask you about a range of issues in this region. But first, uh, you heard from the folks in Nucla, and I wonder if that resonates with you. It sure does. It sounds like the communities in my district that are going through this same process of seeing what had really been a foundational, um, not only economic driver, but part of their identity leave. And they're doing the same thing. They're looking at what could be next for them. What's the next version of their great little town? What are some of those towns? You know, I hear it in Hotchkiss and Paonia, of course, those that stretch through Delta County, and then over in Gunnison as well that relied a lot on those um, coal uh, mines that have closed. But, you know, we also see it over in Leadville, uh, conversations as they look towards their molybdenum mine closing in upcoming decades. So an issue across the district. What's fascinating about this is if you have all these communities trying to transition to a new economy, 
you're going to have them all competing with one another, aren't you? In other words, if they all turn to tourism, if they all turn to arts, they'll all be trying to have slices of the same pie. Well, I think Colorado has shown that it is diverse and there's a perfect little town for everyone. And I think that's what it'll look like. Leadville, you know, will be able to advocate for their incredible history and attract that type of destination tourist, either from Denver or perhaps Virginia and Paonia with their just beautiful, um, you know, orchards and, and lavender and everything that, that North Fork is known for. They'll be able to attract maybe an entrepreneur who decides that their job is location agnostic and they want to set up shop there. That's why we really look at things to help these communities transition, like making sure they have like robust broadband so that the state's supplying the foundational groundwork for these communities to pick their next destination on their roadmap to the future. Because high-speed Internet is critical to what you say, location-agnostic jobs. In other words, people who can live anywhere, do their job from anywhere, but they need to be able to jump on the information superhighway. Uh, what does a just transition mean to you? I, re- I realize I don't really know what that is. And uh, maybe give us an example of how Colorado can make that happen. I mean, I think just transition for me was an aspirational title for that concept of the bill. And what, the, what we were trying to identify with that bill is being very realistic and saying the legislature took some big steps this year, um, responding to what we're hearing from across Colorado of looking for renewable energy future. I always take care of my neighbors. If someone has a flat tire, I try to pull over and help them change that, that tire onto the spare. And we need to have that same spirit of taking care of each other when we make legislation that may impact people. So this Just Transition bill was part of a larger scope of work that I've been doing for um, my term in the legislature of saying, we know that some of these laws will impact folks. What can we put in place to help them determine what's the next step for them? So, you know, additional training, um, like I mentioned before, making sure we have broadband there, um, addressing Uh, grant programs that might be able to expand existing businesses or attract new ones. So that's what we're talking about in this transition. Where can the state help support these communities as they look towards a changing economy? I think the elephant in the room here is the fact that uh, Colorado elected a governor who wants 100 percent renewable power in this state. Uh, That is naturally going to force a transition in energy and thus in these communities. So how often do you think a coal job would become a solar job or a wind job? Uh, And if that's the case, is that as good a life? Are the benefits as good? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at really those long-term solutions that will diversify the economy in these rural areas because we really need to make sure these communities aren't being held hostage by just one industry that kind of thrives in that boom and bust cycle. And the global marketplace has certainly um, caused the price of coal to not be what it used to, rise in natural gas. And these companies that are more concerned about their bottom line than about the people that have spent their entire life working for them and identify. As a rancher, I know that a job can be your identity. And as a coal miner, it's more than a job. It's it's your passion. It's um, the community you grew up in. It perhaps is what your father did or your grandfather even even did. So, you know, when we when those jobs leave a community, we have to talk about more just how do we replace the job, but how do we make sure that community is still able to 
continue to flourish and, and thrive and have a main street that's open and active. Well, you raise a lot of questions there. I'm not sure how many you answer uh, of those. Uh, do you think that the jobs of the future is as lucrative as, as the jobs uh, of the past? We've seen the renewable energy jobs, um, particularly we can cite some in Paonia that are able to match the current salary. Um, but some families are going to have to make some tough decisions. You know, I don't. Th- I think it's hard to say. Yes, we'll be able to duplicate the the exact job that you had with with any career that would be hard to say you know if if you uh, a ski lift operator going from one resort to another it's hard to duplicate perhaps the what you exactly loved about the job but we can we can be open and honest and supportive and make sure that we're not just saying hey too bad you're on your own instead we can be good neighbors and take care of each other to the extent that we are able and really invest and make sure that the front range economy is, you know, shared um, across the state of Colorado and that all of the state is is flourishing. OK, let's broaden this conversation a bit. One issue that much of Western Colorado faces is the high cost of health care. And uh, we've seen this just this week in Frisco and uh, in your stomping grounds in Eagle County. Kaiser has pulled out saying it can't get contracts with local hospitals and thus can't attract members uh, what impact do you think this will have in your community? We have about a minute. Yeah, this is tough news, and it's continuing the larger problem of where um, people's health and taking care of each other is being impacted by the profit margins of larger companies. Um, this is one of the larger challenges we've seen with this health care debate, but we did pass some bills this past session that will hopefully drop people's rates by 10 to 15 percent, but we ha- this still shows that we have more work to do. And one of those things is how do we create more options for people in Western Colorado when it comes to choosing health care? Like a public option? Like a public option and working to talk to hospitals and providers what requirements we may look to them to be good community members and try to provide you know, robust health care service across Colorado. Your zip code shouldn't determine your health care. And right now, unfortunately, in Western Colorado, that's what we're seeing. Very quickly, are you accusing Kaiser here of uh, kowtowing to the bottom line? I think there's two. Uh, the hospitals as well as Kaiser were both trying to negotiate this and work this out. It didn't work out. I wasn't in the boardrooms when it happens, but companies that are looking to make money often can be motivated by the bottom line not working. So, um, you know, there's a lot of causes of that, and they're probably broader than just the two entities that were involved in the the initial um, contract negotiations. But we've got to look at healthcare across the system and shine some light on it. I mean, I'm sure everything from the cost of pharmaceuticals to, you know, what the rent of the building in, you know, this part of the area would be may have impacted this. And those are all these pieces and what makes working on health care so complicated. But we'll keep fighting for it. Democratic State Senator Carrie Donovan, lifelong Vail resident, represents much of Colorado's western slope. How should the president be chosen? Earlier this year, Democrats in the state legislature joined a movement to have the popular vote decide the presidency. Now it's looking like that policy itself may face a popular vote. Critics have been gathering signatures to challenge the law on the 2020 ballot. What the legislature approved, the people could undo. 
Mesa County Commissioner Rose Puglisi is one of the leaders of this effort, and she's with me in our studio on Main Street. Hi, Rose. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, pleased to meet you. Uh, You're a Republican. I imagine the Democratic state legislature passed any number of things this past session that you disagree with. But why is this the one you're pouring energy into overturning? You know, what's really interesting was um, the national popular vote as it was going through the legislature originally wasn't really on my radar, right? It, It doesn't really affect county operations. But one day I'm walking down Main Street in Grand Junction, right past your office, and um Literally five people stopped me on my way to lunch that day to talk about the national popular vote and asked me to get engaged. And so I talked to some political leaders across the state and decided that we would file um, with the secretary of state's office once the legislation was actually approved to the legislature and uh, put this to a vote of the people. All right. Now, the people, of course, elect their elected officials. So haven't the people had their say to some extent already on this? You know, what I think is so different about this versus, let's say, an oil and gas bill, which um, affects Mesa County or the red flag bill that affects Mesa County um, citizens, is that this is this has to do with people's votes. That's very personal to them. And I think that they really want to have their say. And we're going to allow them to do that on the 2020 ballot. With direct democracy, in other words, on the ballot. Uh, We'll explore your opposition to the National Popular Vote Compact a little more deeply. But I I understand that your deadline to turn in signatures, I think, is August 1st. Yes. You'll need 125,000 valid ones to make the ballot. Uh, I was at the farmer's market here on Main Street in Grand Junction just yesterday, saw several of your petitioners. Do you think you'll make it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the overwhelming number of support and the momentum has not stopped at all. I mean, we have 2,100 volunteers, grassroots volunteers who have signed up just through our website. So that doesn't count people who stop by my home to pick up petitions and circulate them as well. Are you also paying petitioners or is it all volunteers? We are paying petitioners just to make sure, you know, we're going for 200,000 signatures and we want to make sure it gets on the ballot. I imagine you've done some signature gathering yourself. I have. Okay. And what have you heard when you talk to people about it? Well, it was amazing. So our first petitions uh, gathering event um, was in Grand Junction. And literally, you know, we had a 3.30 event at a restaurant. And when I pulled up at 3.20, there was already a line of people surrounding the building. Um, When I pulled up, I realized I was not going to have enough petitions. And we turned away about 150 people that day. The amazing part is we had three more events on Saturday and we ran out of petitions on Saturday that as well. So it's been amazing. I know your measure has some Democratic support, but it's it's clear that there are also partisan dividing lines here. Uh, there's a Republican president in the White House right now because of the Electoral College. Uh, and in fact, the three times the Electoral College has split from the popular vote, the Democrat has lost. How is this not about keeping a system that benefits Republicans? Well, what's really interesting is that this has really been a nonpartisan effort. This has really been more about making sure that um, people have their voices heard. And we're just putting this on the ballot in 2020. People can still vote yes if they want to join the compact. But what's been really interesting is we have Democrats circulating petitions. We have unaffiliated circulating petitions. This is, at least in Colorado, has not been a political issue. This has really been a people of Colorado issue. It was a political issue, though, in the legislature. Do I have it right that not a single Republican voted for the change here? Yes, not a single Republican and five uh, Democrats voted against it as well, all in rural areas. 
We asked Governor Polis about the popular vote compact. He signed the bill, so of course he supports the idea. And his argument is that under the current system, Colorado actually has less of a voice. The current electoral college system gives every Wyomingite about twice the say over who's president than every Coloradoite. So while, of course, it discriminates more against votes in Texas and California and New York, it absolutely hurts the impact of Coloradans on the outcome of presidential elections. Rose Buglisi, Mesa County Commissioner, why should Wyoming have more influence in electing the president than Colorado? Um, Well, I'm sure you're not going to be surprised by this, but I I don't agree with the governor's analysis. I mean, what's interesting in Colorado is that this Colorado is a winner take all state. So as long as the you know, whoever wins the popular vote in Colorado gets Colorado's nine electoral college votes, why would we want to change that? I think one argument is that if Colorado indeed is on a path to becoming bluer and it's assumed that it's safely blue, Uh, then candidates will assume something about Colorado, fly over the state and not pay any attention. For Republicans, uh, perhaps relying on the national popular vote might give you more of a voice, more of a profile in a state that uh, has been blue in recent elections. What are you saying? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if New York and California are making the decisions for us, then why would people stop in Colorado at all, regardless? And so you're saying because of their sheer populations. Absolutely. I mean, they're. I mean, if all the electoral college votes are going to go by, um, you know, majority of the the votes, Colorado won't play at all. And right now, I mean, even in Grand Junction, we have had um, both President Obama come out here to campaign. We've had Hillary Clinton come out here to campaign. We've also had Donald Trump come out to campaign. Don't fix what's not broken, I hear you saying. That's perfect. I want to switch gears a bit. We have about a minute. Let's talk about Colorado's new red flag gun law. You made mention of it earlier. It allows a judge to order someone's firearms temporarily seized if they're deemed a threat to themselves or others. Uh, In response, a number of conservative counties passed measures reaffirming their community's uh, commitment to Second Amendment rights. Has Mesa County done anything like that? Um, we sent testimony into the legislature, but we already had, um, since 2013, a Second Amendment resolution that said that we would not enforce unconstitutional laws. And our sheriff is very comfortable with what we have um, on record. This and is Sheriff Matt Lewis. Absolutely. He said publicly that he opposes this new law, but will enforce it if it survives court challenges. Do you agree with that approach? Absolutely. And um, I think there will be a numerous amount of court challenges. So this is a story uh, whose ending you will wait to see. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Commissioner, for being with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Rose Puglisi, Mesa County Commissioner, an office she's held since 2013. And you can indeed hear the governor's take in support of the National Popular Vote Compact at CPR.org. Take a drive around Grand Junction and your GPS might spit out directions like these. Turn right onto 28 and a half road. In a quarter mile, turn left onto B4 Tenth Road. I remember the first time I saw roads named with a letter and a fraction. I was puzzled and charmed, like 25 and a half road intersects with F and a half. My colleague Avery Lill found the method to this madness, and it turns out it's not mad at all and can help situate you in the Grand Valley. 
I called around the city of Grand Junction to get a handle on the naming conventions, and Marie Tipping's name came up several times. She's a library volunteer with the Museum of the West, and she really has a grasp of the history. For example, she has the exact year Grand Valley was surveyed, 1882, right on the tip of her tongue. So let's start with the lettered road names. Here's Tipping. We have a baseline that is A Road out in Orchard Mesa. It's ABC from uh, south to north. Orchard Mesa is the southern part of Grand Valley. So lettered roads run east to west. Each of the letters is a mile apart. And that's where the fractions come in. A and a half road is a half mile north of A Road and Orchard Mesa. Stick with me. Now we're moving to numbered roads. Okay, we start at the state line with Utah. And road one is one mile from the state line. Road two is two miles. Uh, Two-and-a-half road is two-and-a-half miles from the state line. It's real easy, and just it's just the distance from the Utah state line here in Mesa County. And so that tells you where in the valley that you are. But it's important to know, once you get near downtown Grand Junction, there's a difference between numbered roads and numbered streets. There's 12 streets in one mile. That's how they were arranged uh, in 1885. And so our streets, there's lost streets, and it starts with First Street, and they're all one-twelfth of a mile between each one. And that's different than the roads that run from the Utah border. Uh, Yes, First Street is 26 road, 7th Street is 26 and one-half road, 12th Street is 27 road, and so... But they are break down in smaller sections as houses were developed and, and blocks needed to be smaller. Confusing? Maybe. And drivers might want to blame the town founders, but you won't find any streets named after them. Tipping found the reason in a 19th century book called The History of Grand Junction. When they found at Grand Junction, they didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, so they didn't name any of the roads after any of the town founders that lived here. To recap the highlights, east to west roads start with A Road at Orchard Mesa, B Road is a mile north, C Road is two miles north, and so on. Numbered roads run from north to south. Their names tell drivers how far they are from the Utah border. So if you find yourself navigating to instructions like these, turn right onto 28 and a half road. In a quarter mile, turn left onto B4 Tenth Road you'll know you're 28 and a half miles from the Utah border and nearly one and a half miles north of Orchard Mesa. For CPR News, I'm Avery Lill. Oh, God bless you, Avery Lill. I finally get it. Thank you for that. When you think of western slope crops, peaches may come to mind or cherries. But what about lavender? There's a growing lavender industry here, even a festival, which is next weekend. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf takes us to a lavender farm in Palisade. To get to Sage Creation's organic farm, you take a winding road, passing other farms and vineyards. The lush vegetation is in contrast with the high desert mountains and the backdrop. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm Paola. Paola Lagar runs Sage Creation's. About half of her 10-acre farm is devoted to lavender. Today, the fields are in bloom. You can smell it. She bumps into a few workers who have buckets stuffed with bundles of the plant. They are meant to be shipped overnight for a wedding, but there's a problem. We had a rain yesterday, and the rain is kind of 
When the lavender is just beginning to bloom, it's like the worst thing. She explains that when the water gets into the open buds, it turns them brown. So we're, we can't use that. We have to look for some other lavender that will be more suitable. It won't go to waste, though. Lagar will hang these bundles upside down and dry them out. We sell it in different forms, so whether it be for oil... There are rows and rows of such bundles in one of her drawing rooms. This lavender will become culinary products, herbs, spices, maybe jams. So we bundle it, and then we actually strip the buds off, and then we'll run it through a seed cleaner and clean the buds. She also distills the plant down to create essential oils and floral waters and sells starter plants for other growers. Lagar opened her farm 14 years ago and got into growing lavender about a year later. So it was an experiment. Like I started with doing trials, just thinking of an alternative crop to this tree fruit in our area. She had experience with other herbs, so she was curious. She tried just one variety the first year, then more the next. Now she's up to 50 plus, and they aren't even all purple. This growth paid off. Lavender is now 75% of her total revenue. That includes wholesale as well as a store at her farm. Her products ship all over the U.S. Lagar never gets bored with lavender because there are so many different uses, and each kind has a distinct smell. And then the joy that it just brings to people when it's blooming. It's just a beautiful plant. While it's a decent business for Lagar, it's a small industry in Colorado. So small that the USDA doesn't have data on it. But it's steadily growing, says Bob Corver. He's president of the Lavender Association of Colorado. When I grew up in the valley here as a kid, there were no wine grapes. Colorado wine did not exist. We're, as an industry, probably where grapes were 20 or 30 years ago. So we're just getting started. The association began in 2009. The year prior, a master gardener with CSU Extension attended a lavender conference in Washington state. There she realized Colorado has everything lavender loves. A lot of herbs like lavender like kind of dry, hot, dry areas. This is Susan Carter, not that master gardener, Rather, a horticulture agent with CSU Extension Tri-River Area, she says lavender also likes Colorado's bountiful sunshine. And then we actually started a trial garden here, and then from that developed a fact sheet on lavender. CSU reached out to other growers in the area and encouraged them to give it a try. The Lavender Association of Colorado has grown to more than 50 members across the state. Growers here and elsewhere in the U.S. are competing with lavender giants like France and England. So one of their biggest challenges is getting people to realize that you can buy U.S.-grown lavender. To that end, the association started the Lavender Festival in Palisade, where local growers sell their product and show the many ways you can use it. It's drawn about 5,000 people in recent years. Sage Creations is one of the farms you can tour during the festival. As one of the first lavender growers here, owner Paola Lagar has high hopes for the Colorado industry. My hope is that we become recognized on a national and maybe potentially in the future on an international level, that we're known for quality and people come to us for that. And she welcomes more Colorado farmers into the lavender game because it will help elevate the visibility of the crop here. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. When Steph came back from the field, she shared some really interesting lavender trivia with us, and I wanted to share it with you. For example, the master gardener who brought lavender to western Colorado, Kathy Kimbrough, ended up being allergic to it. She says, thankfully, she's good with lotions and essential oils. Also, if you ever find that you're turned off by the smell of lavender, chances are it's the synthetic stuff. And lastly, lavender doesn't have to be lavender in color. As Steph alluded to, it comes in different hues of purple, blue, and even white. 
Think rodeo, and what pops up is probably bronc busting, bull riding, or barrel racing. But there is another rodeo event that's not as well known, goat tying. And 13-year-old Katie Jo Kness of Craig recently won the title of Colorado Junior High Rodeo Association Goat Tying Champion. This month, she'll compete for a national title. And Katie Jo, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, for those of us who have never seen goat tying, uh, how does it work? Are you on a horse and have to chase down a goat like you would, you know, calf roping? No, it's totally different. The goat is staked to the ground. And so you have to run to the goat. It's 100 feet from the gate. And you run down to the goat on your horse and you jump off and then you fling the goat and tie it. But the goat is not loose like a calf would be. I see. But that doesn't mean the goat can't move at all, of course. The goat is essentially on a leash. Yes, it's a 10-foot leash that the goat is hooked onto. How quickly do you have to do this? Um, in order to place in the top 5 or 10, you have to be under an 11-second run, which I did good in the fall and spring. How quickly did you do it? I was an average of 8-second runs, but in the fall, my goat kept getting up due to my string and me not tying very tight. And if the goat gets up, they give you a no time. Ah, but you've done this in about eight seconds, meaning you've gone from the gate to the goat, off your horse, and then tying the goat down. Yes. Are goats particularly difficult animals to tie down? They are. You have some goats that are short and fat and they're heavy to lift and get the legs together, or some goats that just run the rope and you can't catch them. Now, are these goats with horns? Some of them do have horns, actually. Most of them have horns. Well, that sounds awfully dangerous. Have you been injured in this, Katie Jo? Um, I have not been hit with a horn. I have been, but it doesn't hurt that bad. And when you run to the goat, their head is like past you, so it doesn't really hit you. Okay. Are there other ways to get injured? When I dismount my horse, my horse can run me over. Well, that's or not step fun. on me. Has that happened? No, it's not fun at all. Um, I have been stepped on, and it does hurt. And I now wear an ankle brace on the foot I first step with, because usually when I run, I have a really weak ankle, so I roll it. Your horse is named Storm, right? Yes. He's seven years old. Storm sounds like an important partner in goat time. He is very important. Yeah. What kind of training have you had to do with Storm to get this choreography down? Well, I bought him when he was one years old. And so from then on, we just kind of worked with him because he was young and really unsure about everything. And so I sent him to a trainer just to get the basic stuff done. And then when we got him back, I just started getting him straight running at the goat. That way he's not in like going zigzag or running off or anything like that. Mm. That's super important because you want your horse to run straight. And if he ducks off as you get off, he'll pull you down. And then the horse also has to be trained what to do once you're off and on the ground, right? Yep. We had to train him to either keep going straight to the end of the arena or to just circle around and stay out of my way. (laughs) Stay out of the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. What kind of personality does Storm have? Um, He's really sweet and kind. Honestly, he's my favorite horse. He loves to compete. He gets really anxious and nervous in the gate. He's just an overall great horse. How do you feel about the goat in all this? I mean, I can imagine people listening 
uh, who think, well, you have a lovely relationship with your horse, but are you traumatizing the goats? Um, it does not hurt the goats at all. The goats, I mean, at a rodeo, it's not one goat that gets tied by 40 girls. Um, they switch out goats about every three people who run. Stuff can happen to the goat. Like, the goat can get ran over by a horse. But that happens, like, once a year at a rodeo. Once a year, it, it's a, Yeah, it's really rare to get ran over, to run over a goat on your horse. I imagine then you have goats as well as horses, so that you always have goats to practice yeah. with. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What are their names? Um, I don't name my goats. I don't really get attached to them because we trade our tying goats out. So when I tie them a lot, I'll give them back so I'm not like hurting them or tying them too much. And so we'll trade out for new goats. And if I get too attached to them, I usually don't want to trade them back out. We have to buy a new one. Oh, I see. Uh, So are there many other champion goat tires around you and Craig? Or are you kind of alone in that area? Um, There is two other girls than me and Craig that goat tie. I have a couple other friends that barrel race and stuff like that, but they're not really rodeo people. So... It's kind of weird to talk about goat tying and being the state champion because nobody knows what it quite is. <laughs> well, we're hoping to change that here. I understand yeah. that, that you want to parlay this into your career in some way by becoming a large animal veterinarian. Do I have that right? Yes, that is correct. I would like to stay around my hometown practicing on horses and cows and stuff like that. And whenever we do, like, warm our horses or give shots to our horses, I help with that. So I, I know what I'm sort of doing, and I know what I want to do. I wonder what it's like to be a girl in rodeo. Uh, do you face a lot of assumptions that this is a boy sport? No, not at all. Not at all? Wonderful. Tell, nope. me, tell me more about that. Honestly, I think rodeo was made for both men and women. And you have those two different sports, like goat tying is for boys and girls. But it's when boys get older, instead of goat tying, they calf tie, um, which is they just rope the cow and then tie the legs. And that's because they get bigger and stronger, so they don't need to be sitting on a little small goat. If girls are super good, they carry it throughout their career. And so they just keep goat tying in college and stuff like that. Would you hope someday to calf tie? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, good luck at the national championships. Yeah, thank you. Katie Jo Kness is Colorado's champion junior high goat tire. She'll indeed compete for the national title in Huron, South Dakota this weekend. She joined us from her home in Craig, Colorado. One of the most prominent musicians here on the Western Slope is Donnie Morales, the Montrose guitarist and harmonica player has performed around the state for decades as a solo act and in bands like Snooch and D&G Railroad. He has shared the stage with many of his musical heroes, including John Popper of Blues Traveler, Warren Haynes, and the late Greg Ullman. We loved Morales' submission to our recent Solo on the Slope contest, a song he wrote with his eight-year-old daughter called Mama Legba. Mama Legba Please tell me why Down by La Porta's right here on earth The father of the sky Mama Legba Tell Papa please 
Don't go running down into the gutter to try to drink it clean. Morales is with me in our Grand Junction studio. Donnie, I'm so glad you could be with us. What's happening, Ryan? <laughs> I'm just enjoying this part of the state tremendously. Your music's been something of a soundtrack for me. Uh, you're a firm believer in the healing power of music. Quite literally, in your own life, you say that playing harmonica actually saved your life. Yes, it did, actually. About um, Going on uh, close to five years ago, I uh, threw my own... Um, <laughs> my own self damage i uh ended up with uh, pneumonia and it ended up in icu and uh harmonica actually my respiratory doctor he uh, told me that harmonica saved my life by strengthening your lungs yes, i'm lungs, gathering yeah and so yeah clean myself up and uh don't drink don't do any of that uh, crazy stuff anymore now it's just uh music <laughs> This is the song Paris in Autumn, which you recorded with your previous band Snooch at the Mesa County Public Library here in Grand Junction. And that's some breath control because you were you were playing harmonica there and then you immediately go into singing. Oh, yes. But, you know, in, in the studio, you could actually do one thing and then you know, <laughs> overdub it again, as you should know. Oh, wait, you, were che- <laughs> you were cheating on that track. Oh, actually playing it live. I did it live you know, when we performed back in the day. Yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. It was a good band. I don't want to pry too much. Oh, you can pry. Go right ahead. Be okay. my guest. But you, you attributed your health problems to sort of your own decision-making in life. Uh, what were some of those decisions, and, and how did you learn to make different ones? Um, actually, I, was, uh, I, am, I am a recovering alcoholic. Um, I, <laughs> anybody who knows me from previous, uh, my previous life uh, knew I, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm a big guy, and I could put it away, and alcohol, whatever. And since, you know, basically getting to the edge and looking over and staring into the abyss, you know, because my doctor said I almost died, but I've lost my wake, you know, musically and everything, my family, my kids and everything. But coming all the way back to this side, it's, uh, it feels amazing to be, have clarity in my life. And I tell a lot of people, my, you know, my friends, family members, people that, you know, if I can come to, uh, you know, that sobriety, sobriety, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anybody can, because I was, you know, you know, the people that, uh, that would party with me, you know, that it's basically was kind of rock star status and it was pretty bad. Did you have to change your f- group of friends? to get uh, Actually, I lost a bunch of friends uh-huh. to people that said, Oh, it's this, no, it's, you know, you're not doing, you're not the same guy anymore. But now that I'm half a decade away from it, they see, wow, he's sharper. He's a better singer. He's more fun to be around. He's oh, nice. Yeah, people. People used to say I had shark eyes when I would come. Yeah, there's that would just, especially my oldest, my uh, my oldest daughter. They could see it in your face. Yes. Well, okay, enough of that. Let's, enough of that darkness. Talk, come on let's now. Let's talk about the music. <laughs> you moved from Arizona to Colorado in 1983. 83, yes. Uh, but it wasn't until a decade later that you began playing music. How did that start? I guess later in life than for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I started singing about, uh, I mean, music was always around my house. Uh, my father was a musician and stuff like that. And But I just, uh, it was my way to kind of get out of my, uh, I was an introvert. 
in high school quite a bit. I was just an you know, artist type, visual artist. But so I'm like, hey, leave me alone. I just want to draw. But uh, it was kind of the way to break the mold. But now I'm kind of a you know twice baked ham. As you... <laughs> how so? Wait, what does that mean? To I you? just walk in and go, hey, how's it going? Hey, how you doing? What's going on? I just like to. It's difficult to imagine you an introvert. Um, I yeah. Well, a lot of times, um, entertainers and musicians they have. Uh, I and I've talked to a bunch of people and a bunch of the heavyweight cats I've had the opportunity to work with. A lot of times uh, you'd be surprised at how many musicians and artist types are really closet introverts. It's kind of an on and off switch. Yeah. Well, the thing is when you're on stage, you have control. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a social setting as an introvert, you don't have control. So the artist type has uh, the opportunity to take control of that. My guest is Donnie Morales, uh, and he currently fronts the band Donnie Morales and the Big Wind. Brand new, baby. (laughs) <laughs> You're a staple in the Western Colorado music scene. Uh, you did live in Denver, though, for some time. A couple, two, three years. Uh, how, how does life as a musician in Denver compare to Western Colorado, would you say? <laughs> um, I got a lot of friends in Denver, and it's it's tough. It's Any big city is going to have its... Um, there's just so much uh, saturation of great musicians. Mm. And you got to kind of make your way and, and really... You know, pick your pick your battles, so to speak. Is it cutthroat on the front range, uh, or is it I, just that there's too many? From what I from what I hear from some friends of mine, it is. Oh. And you got to be willing to travel out of state. That's the thing. We asked you to raise up a fellow Western Slope artist, and you've recommended a Montrose native named AJ Fullerton. Yep. Yes. Am I a coward? I'm afraid to lose it all. Fearing the choices I made. Making none at all Well, I don't think so But I can't think so I can't think about you I don't think so So I can't think so It's hard to know what's true This is Calamath, the title track of Fullerton's 2017 debut album. You helped kick off his music career when he was in high school? Yeah, he uh, he used to come to our open mics down in Montrose. And he was a, a crazy kid. I love him to death. And he used to play bass behind me. He built it. He built a stand-up base. We called it the Behemoth. He built it. He built it in Woodshop, and he's a great kid. He's and he's a, he's a, and, and I'm actually. I told him once. I said I'm actually taking a page from his book because he is driven, and he's me and him talk all the time. We actually talked a little bit last night. AJ Fullerton. Okay, again, the song you submitted to our solo on the Slope Contest really caught our attention. Uh, We heard a bit of it earlier, Mama Legba. I'd like to listen to another portion of it, but who is Mama Legba? I've been imagining who this might be. Mama Legba is basically, Papa Legba is a voodoo equivalent of the person who uh, takes his soul after a person dies across to the other other plane. And my little one, my daughter Callie, she was learning about that in third grade. And I had this song in my head, and then she actually helped me out writing, you know, some of it. And there's a portion of the song where it says the B word, and she came up with that, which her mother wasn't too pleased about. But, but it is racy. It, well, it is, especially <laughs> coming from an eight year old. So Papa Legba, Papa Legba is is the known sort of folk yes, tradition, and, and you yeah. wanted to maybe feminize that with yeah. a Mama Legba. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like I have a real. I've never been to New Orleans, Louisiana. 
But I always tell my kids, if I ever go to New Orleans, I'll probably won't be coming back. <laughs> the band, play those songs, make us smile again. Hey, yeah. We laughed about it, we laughed about it all night long. You know that we were always laughing out the rising of the sun. Donnie Morales currently fronts the band Donnie Morales and the Big Wind. He performs tonight at the Peonia United Brewing Company in Peonia. We're going to be wrapping up our time in Grand Junction with a live event tonight at the Avalon Theater. I'll be joined by author Peter Heller, whose new book is The River, and by the winner of our solo on the Slope Music Contest, Cousin Curtis. There are still tickets available at CBR.org. I'm Ryan Warner, Colorado Matters and CPR News.